0: Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 30. Psalm 30 will be the psalm we are looking at together this morning. This is another psalm, of course, where uh, David is praising the Lord for his kindness and his grace in saving him. Uh, but I want, us, I want us to focus our attention especially on verses 5-7 to seven, uh, this morning. Uh, where we see, in essence, David looking back on his life and remembering a time in which You could say he basically began to grow very prideful of his station. He began to think that the blessings that he had were blessings that were secured because of who he was, because of his might, because of his wisdom. And it led to a great fall and it led to the Lord's face being turned away from him. And as we'll see, when we consider this psalm, he did not cast him off forever. There was a disciplining hand that came upon David in order to restore him. So we'll think about that together this morning as we look at Psalm 30. You'll notice it begins, Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. And we read beginning in verse 1, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By Your favor, O Lord, You made my mountain stand strong. You hid Your face. I was dismayed. To You, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise You? Will it tell of Your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, as your people, we understand that you are a God who has been gracious to save sinners like us. But even though we may know these things, even though in our our minds we, we have come to understand and embrace them, we still have the reality of the old man within us the sinful flesh. We have the desires of the flesh that wage war against us. And it is very often the case that we can forget that all of the things that we do have, including our salvation, are things that we have only by Your grace and not because of anything that we have done. Lord, it can easily be the case that we can forget these truths and begin to grow prideful, begin to become self-righteous, begin to be puffed up in our own minds and forget Your grace because we have so much sin deep within our hearts and we need You to root it out of us. And we see here in this psalm, we see in the life of David, we see within the lives of your saints that you do just that. That you will bring affliction into our lives in order to humble us, in order to cause us to be a people who rely upon you and look to you alone. So I pray, Lord, that as we consider this psalm this morning, that you would help us to see that even your rod, even your disciplining hand that comes upon us is a good rod. And it is for the purpose of making us holy, of removing the sin that is within us and conforming us into the image of Christ so that we may be able to see Him face to face. Do this for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this morning we come to another psalm where the exact background is unknown, but a psalm which was intended to be used in the context of worship in the temple you can see again by the superscript at the beginning of the psalm that it is called a psalm of david a song at the dedication of the temple or the house and most often it is the case that this word for dedication assumes that something has been completed When the altar, for example, was built and completed in Numbers chapter 7, we read that the chiefs offered sacrifices, they offered offerings for the dedication of the altar. Or in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27, after the walls of Jerusalem had already been rebuilt. We read that the Levites were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication of the rebuilding of the walls with gladness. And it's the same idea in this psalm. David writes a psalm that is to be sung at the dedication of the temple. But of course, David knows, and he knows because God told him as much, that the temple would not be built by his own hands, and it wouldn't be built in his own day, but that it would be built by his son. And so this psalm itself, in essence, points forward, anticipates a future day to come. It is a psalm that anticipates the fulfillment of God's promises that are made to David that one of his offspring would build the house for the Lord. But in this psalm, David also recounts God's goodness and saving works that were worked for him. He recounts the Lord saving him from his enemies and saving him from death But as he recounts God's saving works, he also speaks in the psalm of the pride that had developed in his own heart and how that pride turned him away from trusting in the Lord and how the Lord then disciplined him for his sin. And it's really this part of the psalm that I want to consider in detail this morning. I want us to consider the truth that the Lord, because He is good, because He cares for us, because He loves His covenant children, He will discipline His children. He will bring them into dark afflictions in order to root out the sins That we are very often blind to, and which, after they are rooted out, it then results in our holiness and praise to his name. Now, this truth is seen especially again at the center of the psalm in verses five to seven. But you'll notice that the psalm opens with the end in view. It opens with the good news. With the saving works of God. David begins, you'll see in verse 1, by extolling or by exalting the Lord because the Lord, he says, had lifted him up and exalted him over his enemies. And because the Lord healed him. And by healing him here, he doesn't mean that there was some kind of physical sickness that he had, and the Lord brought a kind of physical healing to him. Now, this is a this is a healing of the soul that he's speaking of here. He was spiritually sick. He had a spiritual virus that was running through his veins. The healing here is like what we find elsewhere in Psalm 41, verse 4, where David says there, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against You. I need healing because of my sin. Or as he says of the Lord in Psalm 103, verse 3, he says that the Lord is the One who forgives all your iniquity. And then in the parallel line, He is the one who heals all your diseases. It is the sickness of sin that David has in mind here. His sin was an infection that had again run its course through his blood. For himself, he had been oblivious to it. He didn't see it. He didn't know it. He didn't didn't anticipate it coming. He didn't know it was there. He didn't know that there was an infection. Just as it is often the case that a man who is infected is infected long before he begins showing any symptoms, so also was David's soul infected with sin long before he knew it. We will look at what that sinful disease was in just a moment, but here he is thanking the Lord for for healing him of his sin. The Lord was his great physician who knew of his sickness even before the symptoms were even seen in David's life. The Lord knew what was in David's heart. He knew David better than David knew David. He knew what was growing. He knew what was spreading within him. But more importantly, the Lord knew how to treat what was present within David's heart. The treatment for David's sin would indeed be painful. It would hurt. It would bring tears and sorrow. It would require precise surgery. The Lord would need to cut on David. Would need to take a knife and cut him open. He would need to wound him for the purpose of healing him. He would need to bring him on the verge of death in order ultimately to give him life. And because the Lord was good to David, He did just that. David says in verse 3 that the Lord brought up his soul from Sheol and restored him to life from among those who go down to the pit. David had to become acquainted with death. The Lord knew he needed to bring David so low that he thought that in in any moment he's going to be breathing his last breath. Sometimes, you know, in open heart surgeries, the physician has to stop your heart from beating in order to repair it. You're as close to death as possible. But when the surgery is over, you are thankful for what the physician did to you because you know that he did it because it was ultimately best for you. And likewise, the Lord had to cure David of his great sin. And in order to do so, he had to bring him to the point of death so that he might heal him. But the question that we need to consider here is what was this sin? What was this spiritual sickness that was so deep inside of David that he didn't even know it was there? He was blind to it. It was spreading. He didn't even have the the faintest sense it was present. He wasn't even coughing, if you will. There were no symptoms. What was the sin that caused the Lord to afflict Him so greatly in order to heal Him? Well, he tells us in verses 6 and 7 He says there, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I said in the midst of my flourishing, my prosperity, my blessings, in that moment, I was saying, I shall never be moved. Now we've seen this language, I shall never be moved before, and in other contexts in the Psalms, it's often a statement of trust, it's a statement that follows from David believing in the Lord, believing in his goodness and in his promises. He said in Psalm 16, verse 8, for example, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And in Psalm 21, verse 7, he says, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. These are statements of confident trust. This is good, strong, biblical faith. It's good. These are the the kinds of things, the kinds of statements, the kinds of thoughts that are worthy of imitation. You believe in the Word of God so strongly that because of the Lord you know, you shall never be moved. This is evidence of a man who stands firmly upon the Word of God. But, this very same language is found also on the lips of the wicked. Psalm 10, for example, describes the wicked as men who are full of pride and who do not seek God. They believe that none of their sins will ever be found out. They live as practical atheists telling themselves that there is no God. Living as if God does not see. And in verse 6 of that same psalm, we read that the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved. This, of course, is an altogether different context. This kind of confidence, this statement that I shall never be moved is not rooted in the Lord or in His Word at all. It is the words of a prideful man. It is the words of a man who has forgotten the Lord or who has rejected Him altogether. And it is in this latter sense that David speaks of himself in this psalm. Again, he says, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. David is speaking about a time in his life where he had grown self-sufficient. His trust in the Lord had been diverted away from the Lord and it had been fixed on his prosperity and strength. A prosperity that he began believing was the making of his own hands. He describes this prosperous state further in verse 7 when he says, and, and this is him speaking later as he's sort of looking backwards and reflecting at this time in his life, he says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. And here he's reflecting on that prosperous time in his life when all things were going well, and he was succeeding in everything he put his hands to. This is probably around the time of 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord, in that chapter, makes a covenant with David. David had been on the run from Saul for quite some time, but now Saul was dead, and David was king. He had defeated His enemies. He had conquered the Jebusites and He took the stronghold of Zion which would become the city of David. He conquered the Philistines and He brought back the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Zion. And during this time as well, 2 Samuel tells us, That he acquired for himself many concubines and many wives. And he had many sons and daughters through them. And this was of course, a sinful thing to do on David's part. And as the narrative of David's life unfolds, we find that it would subsequently bring much evil to his house. But in the ancient world, this was a sign of the king's prosperity. This was a sign of his strength. That he had many wives and many children was a sign of strength among kings because it was through those wives that he made alliances with other nations. With other people of of high standing. And so we are told of David's many wives and children as King in that same context. Not as an example to be followed, but so that we understand that for David, everything in his life as king seems to be going quite well. Blessings are abounding everywhere. His throne was established and the Lord Himself made a covenant with David to establish that very throne forever. His name will be known throughout all eternity because his throne will endure forever. Blessing after blessing was poured out on David. But then it starts going to his head. All of the good things, all of the prosperity, starts making him think about himself in ways that are not true. His sinful heart grabbed on to the good things of the Lord. Again, all of the successes, and it twisted them into sources of personal pride. David began thinking that all of these things were accomplished through his own wisdom and in his own strength. It was because of his own efforts. It was because of his skills. He grew self-sufficient. No longer needing to trust in the Lord. that was the spiritual sickness that started growing in David's heart. And again, he didn't even know it. He couldn't see it. It's often the case. With hidden sins like pride, you can't see it. But it's there. And the Lord does see it. And in the case of David, the Lord knew what was lying dormant in his heart and what was now beginning to be awakened. Again, this is what sin does to you. It blinds you. It deceives you. It pounces on you when you least suspect it. And pride and self-sufficiency is one of the most deceitful and dangerous of all. And it's an especially dangerous sin, I think, for the American church. In terms of prosperity, most American Christians are the most prosperous of all. Even if you live below the poverty line, Compared to the rest of the world, you are rich. And even besides material prosperity, it is very easy when everything in your life is going relatively well to become self sufficient and prideful. Things are going well at the church, there's peace in the home, friendships are strong. Health is good. It can be very easy in times of all kinds of prosperity to begin thinking to yourself or living as if you shall never be moved. And the pride very quickly starts to spread to other parts of your life. But if you're paying attention, the symptoms can be seen. You do start coughing a little. You start getting lethargic a little. It affects, for example, your prayers. Maybe at one time you were fervent and you were constant in prayer, and now you pray less and less. You don't think much about it because why would you? You don't need the Lord to answer your prayers when you can take care of it yourself. You can figure it out. You can think through it. You can strategize through the issues. Who needs the Lord when you have the strength yourself? Or maybe when you do pray, you pray in essence according to your prosperity. Meaning that what you want the Lord to do is to answer your prayers with as little disruption to your prosperous station as possible. You just want more prosperity. Or more ease. Or more peace. But when we pray in truth, We must trust in the Lord that He will answer our prayers in ways that are always best for us. And these are ways that very often we would rather not have. We want the physician to heal us without operating on us. We would much rather have holiness apart from the knife or as we even considered this morning in our Sunday school we would rather be fruitful apart from pruning we don't want the cutting we just want the fruit of righteousness apart from all of it It reminds me of that John Newton hymn where Newton says I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love every grace, might every more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. That's what Newton wants. That's what he's praying for. That he would grow. That he would know the Lord. That he would seek the Lord all the more. That seems like a reasonable and pretty easy prayer to be answered. And one that could be answered with relative ease. Relative comforts. The Lord could just zap you. And you'd wake up in the morning and your heart would be so changed that from here on out, Every waking moment is just always seeking the Lord, always growing in faith. You look at your faith and you're like, man, that faith's strong. Thank you, Lord, for last night's zap. We kind of want it that way. But of course, how Newton says his prayer was answered was not what he was expecting, but it was what was needed. It was an answer to his prayer. He says that the Lord caused him to feel the evils of his heart even more. He says that his soul was assaulted by the very powers of hell itself. He says that the Lord laid him low and it seemed as if the Lord Himself was pursuing him like a worm. As if... All of God's wrath was now aimed at Him. He was afflicted. And the affliction exposed the evils that were in his heart. And when Newton cries out to the Lord, why? Why are you pursuing me like this? Why the affliction? Why the pain? Why the weeping? Why the sorrow? Why God, if You're a good God, would You do this to Me? When He's asking those ever-common questions. Why? The Lord replies, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set Thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thy all in me. Newton wanted to grow. He wanted to depend on the Lord and to know Him more. But in order for that to happen, his pride had to be rooted out. There's no no prideful seeking of the Lord. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as self-dependence that relies on God. But it was that pride that was in Newton's heart and that had to be rooted out. And he had to have an occasion by which his faith could be refined. And it's often the case that when we pray, Lord, grow me in holiness. Make me more like Christ. Because we have had such ease, we want that prayer answered apart from the cross. Lord, I want to be a disciple of Christ. I want to follow Him wherever He leads. Except Calvary. I'll take the moments where the crowds are gathering around to hear everything He's saying. That sounds good. That's the Christ-like stuff I want. Or in our charismatic worlds. I want all of that powerful, glorious stuff I see. I want to heal people. I want to raise them from the dead. I want all of the stuff that that draws everyone's attention. That's what we want. When we want to become like Christ, we don't want the cross. And yet, because the Lord is good, He will give us the cross. If we are His, and we are asking the Lord to grow us and to make us like Christ, because He is good, He will afflict us with a cross. We want a kind of microwaved form of holiness. Pop it in for 30 seconds, and out we come, shining like the sun. But if the Lord Jesus himself learned obedience through what he suffered, as the book of Hebrews tells us, what makes us think that we can learn obedience apart from suffering? This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul himself gives a promise to Christians You know what this promise is? (laughs) We always want to latch on to all of those great promises about, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven and the glory that is to come. But there's also promises that concern our life now on earth. And one of those promises is that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In some form. It may not be that you're dragged in the middle of the road and beaten and killed or things like that, but the Lord Jesus Himself does say also, blessed are you when others revile you. We see in First Peter, there is very real social persecution that can come when a Christian lives like a Christian and says, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. We're not going to do the things that the world does. We're not going to live our lives according to the way that the winds blow in the culture and change every decade or so. We're going to firmly plant ourselves in the Word of God. And we're not going to indulge in the things that the world indulges in. When the world walks around and celebrates all forms of sexual immorality, we're not joining that. They're laughing and celebrating. We're weeping. that's strange that's going to make you strange and it's going to bring into fulfillment jesus's words if they hated you know that they hated me first christian learns obedience through suffering and so prosperity and self-sufficiency can affect our prayers and that we're only praying with a view towards quick fixes and easy faith. But in the Lord's kindness, He will often answer our prayers in ways that truly make us holy. I think another thing, another sort of symptom we could look at as well, another way that prosperity can negatively affect us is in our repentance. It can just as easily distort our repentance. It can turn it into nothing more than worldly sorrow. And here I think about a man like Judas. He betrays Jesus for money. For a bag of 30 pieces of silver. But once Jesus was arrested and condemned, Judas regretted his decision. He felt bad for it. And he tried to erase it. He tried to cover it up as if it never happened. He tried to rewind the clock, if you will. To go back in time. He came back to the chief priests who had given him the blood money and he tried to return it take this back I don't want it anymore but he never sought the Lord he never confessed his sin to God with a repentant heart he never went to Jesus to reconcile He could have done that. Even as Jesus is carrying his cross up to Calvary, he could have been one of those men, another man, helping him to carry his cross. He did not even seek reconciliation with Jesus' disciples and confess to them for his betrayal. Now, he thought to himself that sufficient repentance would simply involve returning the money. That could ease his conscience. That's the source of his guilt. And that could fix his guilt problem. But once the chief priest refused to take the money back, we see how superficial his repentance really was he could not heal his own conscience anymore. He thought he could. He thought just by returning the money to cinder, conscience is free. But that was insufficient. The chief priests refused the money. And so what happens to Judas? He becomes overwhelmed with grief he has no idea how to repent or where more accurately to direct his repentance to and so because he's trying to take care of it himself he becomes overwhelmed with grief and he goes out and he hangs himself Judas's repentance was a repentance on his own terms. It was a prideful repentance. It was a repentance that did nothing more than to sink him deeper into sin. And that's what men often try to do in their pride. Even their repentance becomes twisted. They have sinned. They have entangled themselves into 10,000 traps. They have been blinded by their iniquity. And then, they often think they can find their own way out of it. They listen to their own counsel and no one else's. And that itself is an act of pride that compounds the lack of repentance even more. It is a self-sufficient repentance which in effect becomes no repentance at all. It is a feigned repentance by which you try to clean stained garments with more dirty rags. Pride can blind us In a thousand different ways. And for David, it had blinded him completely. In all of his successes, he came to believe that it was his own hand that had done it. And the results of this growing pride of the heart were disastrous. In the narrative of David's life, What follows 2 Samuel chapter 7, at least for just the next couple of chapters, where God makes a covenant with him, is more victories. We're told of even more victories over the Philistines, over the Moabites, over the Syrians, over the Ammonites. Indeed, chapter 8 says specifically that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's the next couple of chapters. But then a few chapters later Later, chapter 11, the downward spiral begins. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. He was not where he was supposed to be. He was not on the battlefield with his men. And he starts gazing at women that are not his own. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He murders Uriah to cover it up. He allows his son Amnon to get away with an outrageous sin against his own sister. And then Absalom, another son, hates him and plots a conspiracy against him. His pride, his heart turning away from the Lord led to more sin and then more chaos to follow. And these are probably the kinds of things that David is referring to when he says at the end of verse 7, you hid your face. Lord, you hid your face. I was dismayed. Remember, for the Lord's face to be shining upon someone means that He is blessing them. And thus, in the opposite direction, the Lord's faith being turned or hidden from them means that they are cursed or they are being chastised and disciplined. David's sin brought the Lord's rod of judgment into his life. And that rod brings affliction. It brings pain. It brings suffering. But I think what's also important to remember here is that for those who belong to the Lord, and for those who are His children and who are in covenant with Him, like David was, the Lord's disciplining rod is not a rod that wounds only. It is also one that heals. It is a rod that drives out the evils of the sin that are in the heart. David needed to be humbled. And it probably wasn't going to be the case that just some of his counselors could have come by and said, you know, David, you're looking a little prideful today. You might take that down a notch and try some humility. That wasn't going to get to him. His pride had gotten the better of him. And the Lord, in His mercy to David, would use the afflictions that came into his life in order to discipline him, humble him, and bring him ultimately back to himself. It was the rod of the Lord's judgments that brought David to true repentance. And we see this especially in Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of repentance for his sin with Bathsheba. And one of the things he says in that psalm is in verse 4 where he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And of course, this doesn't mean But David didn't believe that he had sinned against Bathsheba or that he had sinned against Uriah or anyone else. But what it means is that he understood that the primary person he had sinned against and departed from was the Lord. It's the Lord who's most important in the equation. When David's heart begins to turn away from the Lord and to himself, he's already sinned. And then it snowballs into all of the wicked fruit that affects everyone else. That's what he means here. He recognizes that it is the Lord ultimately whom he has sinned against. And so it was the Lord's face that he had to seek first. And likewise, in Psalm 30, and in verse 7 again, you'll notice that it is not primarily the consequences of his sin that make him dismayed. He's not saying, my house fell apart, then I was dismayed. He's not saying, Nathan the prophet rebuked me, and that made me feel ashamed, then I was dismayed. Who is he thinking about? The Lord. You turned your face from me. You hid your face from me, and I was dismayed. All of these other things are no doubt real consequences of his sin and real occasions that may have helped him to see the reality of his sin. But even here in this psalm, what causes him to be the most dismayed is that the Lord's face was hidden from him. His communion with God, in other words, was broken. He had displeased the Lord, and because he had displeased the Lord, he was dismayed and led to repentance. And this is what true repentance involves it involves, most especially, seeing how your sin separates you from God. It involves being grieved that your communion with the living God has been hindered. Or perhaps even that it's non-existent. That it just wasn't even there. And it is that above all that then leads you to seek His face and to be reconciled to Him. It is that your sin separates you from the Lord that causes you to hate your sin and flee it and to cry out to Him for mercy. Many times, men fear only the worldly consequences of their sin. And so they do whatever they can to cover it up or to save face, or to avoid shame, or to justify it, or to lessen it. They could care less about their relationship with God. What they're most concerned about is all of the external effects of their sin. But not the fact that they've offended Him. They don't care about living in the light of His face. And they don't care about a clean conscience as long as they have the blessings and praise of men. That's what they want to make right. And that kind of repentance will kill you. You will think all things are well Because you're in good standing with others around you. And the same sin will continue to flourish within your heart. And it'll just produce new fruit in other places. But the kind of repentance that seeks the face of God and is broken before Him is the kind that leads to life. And what we find then in the remainder of the psalm is that when you do turn to the Lord in truth and when you cry out to Him for mercy, He will restore you. He will forgive you of your iniquities and turn your mourning into dancing. A restored and forgiven sinner, friends, is the happiest person in the world they have been afflicted by the disciplining hand of the lord and oftentimes that hand has felt as if it's unbearable as if the wrath of god as newton says is pursuing you like you were a worm But the Lord disciplines those whom He loves as His own children and He roots out the sins that are deep within them. And any sinner who has known the forgiveness and grace of God can tell you That they do not have adequate words to describe how thankful they are that the Lord brought them low. I mean, think about what we sing in another Newton hymn. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. the redeemed, forgiven, restored, saved sinner can look at their wretchedness and can look at how the Lord crushed them into fine dust. And they can then say, that was a work of God's grace to pull me out of the hell that was entangling and killing me. Any sinner who has known God's grace can tell you how good God's rod is and how good His wounding hand is. Because after He wounds, He heals. And when He heals them, When He gave them the gift of Christ, it was as if the gates of heaven had been opened afresh to them. The darkness of night that was their sin was overcome by the brightness of the day that shone forth in the face of Jesus Christ. And they can say with David, the Lord's anger is but for a moment that His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. When you humble yourself and when you turn from your sin and trust in the Lord, He is gracious to forgive all your iniquity. And with that forgiveness comes a joy that begins in seed form now, but will abound and abound all the more, forevermore. It will be a joy of being saved from the poison that was killing you by the gracious hand of the Lord. That forces you, compels you to sing His praise and to rejoice in His grace from this day and forevermore. Let's go to the Lord and ask the blessings on His Word. Father, it is indeed often the case that we want to avoid... Your rod, your disciplining hand. But even as David said elsewhere in the Psalms, it is the rod that comforts him. And I pray that for all who are here, we would not follow the pattern of Adam and Eve, who when they sinned, went and hid themselves from You. But that we would bring our sin to the light. We would confess it before You. We would imitate David here as he cries out for mercy. And because You have said that You will do this, we will then receive Your mercy and grace. Father, help us to recognize the true good in all of Your works towards us. Help us not to despise the afflictions that come to us, but to see them as what they truly are when we are in Christ. They are afflictions that are for our good to root out our sin and to make us holy. Do this for your glory and our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.